You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 18th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Hello, this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, hundreds have been killed in Gaza after missile strikes on a hospital on the eve of US President Joe Biden's visit to Israel. He's coming here at a critical moment for Israel, for the region and for the world. As the Arab world reacts to the hospital blast, which has been blamed on Israel, how much can Biden really achieve? Ukraine has used long-range missiles provided by the United States for the first time. We'll ask if this is a game-changer in the war with Russia. Vladimir Putin is in China. We'll get a readout of his visit to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative. We'll check in with Qatar, a country that's an ally of both the US and entities sanctioned by Washington, and ask if Doha might be best placed to mediate peace in the Middle East. We'll have a roundup of rail news, and then... I'm Natalie Theodosi, Monocle's fashion editor, and I'll be speaking about the new craft school launched by Bottega Veneta, an Italian brand's commitment in preserving the country's artisanal heritage. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. South Korea, the United States and Japan will hold a joint aerial exercise near the Korean peninsula for the first time to bolster cooperation against North Korean threats. Venezuela's government and its political opposition have agreed to electoral guarantees for the 2024 presidential elections, paving the way for possible US sanctions relief. And climate activist Greta Thunberg was detained by police in London on Tuesday after she and others protested outside an oil and gas conference. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, an airstrike has killed hundreds of people at a hospital in Gaza. Hamas blames it on an Israeli airstrike, but Israel says the blast was caused by rockets misfired by another group, Palestinian Islamic Jihad. US President Joe Biden is visiting Israel today, but a planned summit in Jordan with Arab leaders has been cancelled. Palestinian journalist in Istanbul, Abir Ayoub, joins me now. Abir, many thanks for coming on the show. What more do we know about this strike? Uh, what we know that uh, an Israeli uh, airstrike killed more than 500 people in um, uh, in a, a very busy hospital in the Gaza City, which was used as a shelter for thousands of Palestinians. Uh, the situation is getting more terrible as the uh, hospitals in Gaza don't have the capacity to receive more injuries and dead bodies. I would say that it's worse than ever in Gaza. Who's the group that Israel have accused of being responsible? Uh, Israel accused uh, Islamic Jihad of the rocket, but they uh, issued three contradicted statements on this. I mean, uh, and a very north uh, mentioning, uh, worth mentioning that uh, Israel warned this exact hospital yesterday to evacuate. 
So uh, one day after this warning, the, the, the hospital was bombed. And I'm aware that uh, Israel accused Islamic Jihad of the rocket. But uh, as I told you, uh, at the beginning, they said, OK, we warned the hospital. And one hour later, they said, OK, it's not us. So uh, even from the Israeli perspective, you have three different narratives. Mm. What have been the reactions to this strike in the Arab world? Uh, I, I mean, uh, you could see that demonstrations went out against the, the strike uh, in late hours of the night in Egypt, Jordan, even in European countries. So I think this is the largest, um, you know, the largest number of killing uh, since the beginning of the operation. This is why uh, a lot of demonstrations went out, the summit. Uh, today in in Amman uh, was cancelled, so a lot of uh, you know consequences for the strike happened. Abia, thank you very much indeed. That's Abia Ayub. Well, let's cross now to Julie Norman, who's co-director of University College at London's Centre on U.S. Politics. Julie, as we know, U.S. President Joe Biden's visiting Israel today. He was meant to go to Jordan, uh, where he was uh, due to meet officials, including Palestine's Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, his visit was meant to de-escalate the conflict. How does this hospital strike change things? Georgina, it changes everything. Uh, you know, obviously, this is a, a devastating attack. Many details still coming in. But for Biden to be going to Israel, what was especially billed initially as a kind of a show of solidarity with Israel in the midst of this attack is um, is just very poor, um, very poor for, for Biden. Uh, you know, for him going now, I think there was actually some debate within the administration if he should still go. He still went. Um, but I do think the messaging is going to need to change extremely quickly from what was just going to be this very, again, solidarity kind of message to one that needs to be much more publicly focused on humanitarian conditions as well. I think that was going to be part of kind of closed door nudging, but it just it will just by necessity need to be much more clear now in the open this time. Absolutely. I mean, Secretary of State Antony Blinken's been touring the region. Why is it even necessary for Biden to go there too? Was it largely symbolic when it was planned? I think it was a mix. One, you know, Biden personally feels very strongly about this issue and this conflict, and I think personally wanted to go and be there. Um, he did want to show that strong solidarity with Israel. And I think a calculation that um, he would maybe have more leverage with Israel if he showed that solidarity and was there on the ground. But also it was partly deterrence also. Um, and again, I think since this decision was made, the conflict has um you know, has has gotten out of the U.S.'s control, to say the least. But the sense that I think Biden hoped by him going, it would be a show of force to Iran, to Syria, to Hezbollah to say, this is how strongly the U.S. is taking this. Again, events on the ground, this hospital bombing in particular, are going to sway public opinion way more than the president's visit would. And in terms of humanitarian aid, I mean, it's not just Israel that needs to be convinced of the need for it. Which other stakeholders will be approached? to arrange aid or self-safe passage? And will Biden, in fact, be able to engage with them at all following the, the Gaza hospital strike? 
Yeah, it's it'll be complicated. So the main Arab state that the U.S. and Israel will coordinate with is Egypt, which controls the Rafah border crossing with Gaza on the southern end. Um, according to Egypt authorities, the aid is there. They are willing and ready to open the crossing. But um, the agreements need to be made with the Israeli side on, on how to get things in and, and out. Um, so I do think conversations with Egypt will need to happen. Um, but also there will need to be ongoing conversations with, um, with representatives of Hamas and possibly Islamic Jihad in the Strip as well. And for that, the U.S. and Israel usually go through Qatar, um, a state that is able to kind of do that back and forth shuttle diplomacy with actors that the U.S. and Israel don't engage in directly. Mm. Uh, presumably, Israel won't launch a ground attack whilst Biden's in the country. But IDF officials have also said there might be something different to a ground offensive. What might that be? Yeah, I I feel it's a little, it's difficult to predict, obviously, and Israel, I think, wants to demonstrate that all cards are on the table. We've obviously seen the airstrikes already. They've said that this incursion will include air, ground, and, and sea. Um, I do think that Biden's presence would likely delay it a bit and maybe buy a little bit of time, especially for some of the humanitarian um, uh, negotiations to, to happen in a bit uh, more, more rapid uh, way. Um, but with that said, again, things are just changing so quickly. I do think this strike is going to change things quickly and how both Israel and the U.S. response to that is going to be extremely key in this next 24 hours. Uh, Iran's foreign minister says that Israel won't be allowed to act in the Gaza Strip without consequences and warned of preemptive action in the coming hours. Uh, do we have any more insight into that? Yeah, I mean, we've heard a lot from Iran over the last several days that they're they're seeing it inevitable to potentially escalate the conflict. I will say we often hear this kind of rhetoric and, and it's not always matched by action. With that said, there has been increasing um, crossfire on the northern border where Iran's um, proxy Hezbollah is located in southern uh, Lebanon. And I think the real question during this week has been if Iran would activate Hezbollah more fully and open up a full northern front. So we haven't seen that yet, but that's definitely the concern and the fear for many in Israel and for the U.S. Um, and indeed for much of the Arab world, as it would be incredibly uh, destabilizing and, and really just open up the region to a wider conflict. Mm. I wonder how Biden's visit to the Middle East compares to his previous visits to Ukraine in terms of Western support. Yeah, obviously very different. Um, you know, Biden went to Ukraine with, I think, most of NATO, most of, uh, you know, Europe, but with uh, standing with him in that, uh, you know, and, and very much supportive, obviously, of the cause in Ukraine. For Israel, it's very different. I think the U.S. stands a bit alone in um, their stalwart support for Israel. They're much uh, less likely to condemn Israeli actions or hold up international law as a you know general reference point, though this administration has done that a little bit more. Um, um, and so in this way, Biden is a bit more of an outlier and most other, uh, you know, Western European states are are not going to take the same kind of position that the U.S. does on Israel-Palestine. Why is the U.S. so firmly behind Israel? Yeah, I would say like many foreign policy decisions, it's a mix of both values and interests for the U.S. Um, you know, they do see Israel as a very long-standing core democratic ally in a region that in the past the U.S. has not always had a lot of partners and allies. That's obviously changed in recent years, but they do see Israel as um, a sort of special ally in that relationship. Um, and then over the more recent years, I would say there's been more of an interest-based relationship also in terms of intelligence, in terms of military, in terms of diplomacy, uh, encountering, um, you know, uh, uh 
really al-Qaeda, um, political violence, that kind of thing in the region. But I think it goes back much further. And that's why you see the response from politicians like Biden, especially who have been in office for a while and feel more of that, um, you know, moral values based link to Israel as well. And I wonder what uh, this visit to Israel by Biden will, how it might influence the presidential campaign back home. Yeah, I would say, you know, it's it will probably be seen very positively by many in both parties that he's going. He's gotten some rare praise, even from the other side of the aisle, for how he's handled this so well. Most um, most Republicans and the majority um, traditionally of Democrats have also stood very strong with Israel. I would say in the Democratic Party that's shifted in recent years among progressives and younger voters, much more um, sympathy and attention to, to Palestinians. But traditionally, both parties have been very strong on Israel. And uh, I would underscore the fact that I don't think this is just a an election move by Biden or a campaign move. Again, he personally has been very invested in Israel for, for decades. Um, and I think he'd be going regardless. But at the end of the day, it will probably help him with many um, centrist voters, with many more independent and slightly conservative voters, the fact that he's going and taking this uh, kind of strong position. Uh, and just finally, what are the personal and political risks for Biden? Yeah, there are definitely risks. Um, I mean, to be going to a active conflict zone and one that is very unpredictable at the moment, and again, especially now going on the day that he's going following what is probably going to be one of the most devastating strikes that that we've seen um, is going to be a high security risk. Obviously, he knew that going, the administration knew that going and felt it was still worth it. And I think has coordinated enough with um, with Israel, uh, you know, on the other side to be able to ensure a, a safe trip. Um, but with that said, a lot of logistics in the mix and obviously a lot of politics in the mix as well that are, um, again, very much out of Biden's control and out of the administration's control as he goes into what is a very rapidly escalating conflict area. Julie, thank you very much indeed. That's Julie Norman there. And this is The Globalist. Just coming up to 9.14 in Kiev, that's uh, uh, 14 minutes past 2 a.m. in Washington, D.C. Now, for the first time, Ukraine's military has fired a version of a U.S.-provided army tactical missile system, that's Atakans, striking Russian military aircraft and ammunition depots in occupied Ukraine. The information comes from a senior Ukrainian military official and is Kiev's first known use of the munitions. Well, I'm joined now in the studio by Jenny Mather, who's a senior lecturer in international politics at Aberystwyth University. Jenny, we speak to you often, but I think this is the first time you've ever been in. It is indeed, yes. Well, it's lovely to have you right across the table (laughs) from me. Uh, President Vladimir Vladimir Zelensky has been asking for these weapons for some time. Do we know when they were delivered and why was it all done so covertly? Well, we know that about three weeks ago, the Biden administration promised... Uh, Kiev to provide them with these long-range missiles. Um, but then it all went very quiet. Um, and I think now we understand why it went quiet, because part of the impact of using them by Ukraine was the unexpected dimension, because no one actually knew when they were going to be delivered. And so Ukraine was able to take advantage of the element of surprise and completely take Russia, um, you know, 
off guard uh, mm. and and inflict enormous amount of damage, uh, which it which it has done with these first strikes. Mm. It would tell us about the damage. What 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 has been hit? So they attacked two different Russian airfields, uh, both very deep inside um, Russian-held Ukrainian territory, and in fact, practically, you know, one of them was was right on the coast, and so just as as far as you can get uh, before actually getting to to Crimea. And they are said to have des- to have destroyed, I think, nine um, uh, military helicopters and a lot of ammunition, and just generally caused chaos and and really uh, demonstrated, I think, to the Russians that certainly anything within this range is no longer safe and they're really going to have to think hard about where they put a lot of their valuable equipment and, and ammunition. And do you think that the delivery of the attack signify an escalation of U.S. involvement in the conflict? I think it, it demonstrates that we're at another step. And, and what we've seen with U.S. support and indeed, you know, all, all international support for Ukraine has been a step-by-step process, um, whereas, you know, certain amounts of, of weaponry, certain kinds of weaponry have been provided. Uh, and then everyone has sort of waited to see what would happen. And then they've taken the next step. And so this is definitely the next step. Um, but, you know, whether it's really an acceleration any more so than, than simply another step is another question. I mean, there are several different versions of the missile, and these ones were slightly modified. Uh, how and why? Well, I think the U.S. is very concerned that um, that Ukraine not use weapons um, that it provides to attack uh, targets in Russia itself, because there is continuing concern that you know the West, the U.S. doesn't want to provoke Putin, doesn't want to try and um, you know go too far and risk some sort of uh, dramatic escalation, which might even take the war beyond uh, the, the scope of Ukraine. So there's been a concern about you know how they're used, uh, wanting to make sure that the Ukrainians are well trained in them. So I think there's a variety of, of, of issues and, and concerns that have reflected how they have done this transfer. And has Russia responded to the use of the weapons here? Not really, no. There's been some claims that Russia has shot down some Ukrainian drones, but they haven't really directly responded to this attack officially. We've seen uh, lots of reports coming through on, on sort of Russian telegram channels and, and through um, people who are on the ground or much closer to what's actually happened, but nothing at, at a high official level. And should we attach any significance to the fact that Putin was in China at the time? Well, I think the Ukrainians are very canny about their timing, and they're very aware, obviously, of what Putin is doing and where he's going. And the fact that uh, he was uh, on this very high-profile visit to China, trying to improve relations with President Xi, trying to cement that link with with the Chinese, uh, is hugely embarrassing for Putin for this to happen at a particular time when he's you know out there trying to raise the profile and trying to demonstrate Russian strength. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised to, to know that they had uh, decided, you know chosen the timing um, to make the most of the the PR impact, if you like. Mm. And Jenny, while we have you here in the studio, it would be really good just to get a sense of how the counter-offensive is going, whether these weapons will in fact influence that in any way, and and which way this war is headed. Oh, well, that's really hard to say, because... There are so many moving parts to this conflict. And while Ukraine has been engaged in this counteroffensive now for several months, since June, um, Russia has also been pushing back. And so what we've seen in recent days has been a Russian uh, you know, move to sort of move more troops and try and take some vulnerable areas, um, which you know it would regard as, as valuable prizes. So I think the, the direction of movement is not all one way. Um, I think it's hard to say exactly, again, you know, to, to put a scorecard on it is really, really difficult. But I think the more advanced weapons that Ukraine gets and the more effectively they're able to use them, I think it demonstrates both symbolically that they they are 
you know, moving in the right direction, but also uh, it does continue to degrade Russia's ability to wage the war. And this is one of the key targets uh, that Ukraine has set for itself. And it's one of the key uh, tasks that it has tried to accomplish uh, in this counteroffensive. Mm. And just looking at, at the region, at the neighbours, I mean, Poland, we've just had good political news come out of there. Clearly, they're going to continue supporting. Uh, what about general support f- for Ukraine from the region? I think from, from Europe in general, support has been excellent, has been very strong. You know, particularly the Baltic states, Germany has has you know taken a little while to get up to speed, but has now become really a major donor and a very very significant supporter of Ukraine. Poland, as you say, we've had a, a recent election which suggests a change in the political temperature. Uh, we might get stronger Polish support because they were pulling back a bit uh, in certain areas already. So I think European support is very strong. Um, I think that the big question is over the U.S. and that's not over the commitment of the Biden administration. It's over the Republicans and and the ability that they will have to try and and put a, an obstacle uh, in the path of, of further support for Ukraine. And do you think that the Middle East conflict will in, uh, influence things at all? Yes, I think there's a, a danger that, uh, from the Ukrainians' point of view, there's a danger that US focus will be distracted and divided, obviously. Although also it's worth noting that the Democrats in Congress are looking to see whether they can somehow use um, the, the conflict in the Middle East as a way of, of packaging uh, more support for Ukraine into a wider set of international package, which might gain them some more Republican support. So it's hard to say at this point whether the conflict in the Middle East is definitely going to point in one direction or the other. Um, It's probably going to be certain sort of competing interests there. Mm. Uh, And finally, just a question about morale within Ukraine. Uh, How is the population bearing up? I think extraordinarily well. I think, you know, we have Ukrainian um, opinion poll organizations that are constantly taking surveys. So we have a, a really good sense of what Ukrainian public opinion is. And, you know, public opinion is very strong in favor of continuing continuing the war in spite of all the, the pain and, and damage and loss which has been suffered by the Ukrainian people. Um, so, you know, so far, uh, they, they continue to be very strong. Jenny, lovely to have you in the studio. That's Jenny Mathers there. Now, still to come on the programme. Why Mexico is reviving a centuries-old railway. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Let's continue now with today's newspapers. And joining me in the studio is Latika Burke, who's a journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Good morning to you, Latika. Good morning, Georgina. It's all a bit overwhelming working in news right now. It has been a very depressing two, three weeks, hasn't it? Everywhere you look, it's just uh, bad news and a relativity of how much worse it can get, right? 
But good news for China in terms of the economy, at any rate. Yeah, this is really interesting because, and I think we've discussed this a couple of times uh, when we've been looking through the papers of a morning, Georgina, just the slowdown in the Chinese economy. In fact, over the last few months, we had seen China actually start stopping reporting key economic data measures because they were so bad that they didn't want to reveal to the rest of the world just how poor the economy was going in China. Well, we've had quite a surprise this morning because the Chinese economy has actually grown in the third quarter a little uh, faster, a little greater than people were expecting. And by people, I mean uh, economists surveyed by Reuters, so not just any old man and his dog. Uh, China's gross domestic products, Georgina, grew 4.9% year on year in the third quarter. And expectations were that that would be around 4.5%. Now, China has set itself a target of 5% growth, which a lot of countries would love to have 5% growth. But for China, uh, which is the world's second largest economy and, of course, trying to be the biggest economy in the world, um, that is actually quite a lower growth, relatively speaking. Nevertheless, this is quite good news in terms of people who watch China's economy, people who depend on China's economy, and, of course, that's a lot of us. Uh, Now, the Chinese themselves have struck a very cautious tone despite this better-than-expected news. Uh, One official uh, from the National Bureau of Statistics said we should be aware that the external environment is becoming more complex and grave while the domestic demand remains insufficient and the foundation for economic recovery and growth needs to be further consolidated. Now, that, I think, speaks to some very structural problems that are not only plaguing other economies and developed economies, uh, but very much China's uh, economy uh, is suffering, of course, from their property sector. Mm. And then you add on top of that the external shocks that we're seeing around the world. Now, so far, it's been uh, a little too early to say whether the Israeli conflict will have the kind of tectonic shift on the economy and, and effects on the economy that we saw with the Ukraine war that sparked inflation, of course. Um, and sent energy prices absolutely skyrocketing. Whether that's going to happen on a similar vein to any other sorts of commodities, we'll see from Israel. But so far, people have not been saying that. But nevertheless, uh, global uncertainty does not necessarily bode well for economic uh, recovery and economic development. So there's a lot riding on how the Chinese economy performs. But For the moment, Georgina, that would be a a much more optimistic result this morning than people were expecting. Mm. And I'm surprised to see that consumer spending in particular is up 5.5% higher than in September compared to the same month last year. So the Chinese people are clearly not feeling the pinch themselves quite so badly if they are still buying Yet the the Chinese have been having this ongoing problem since they went uh, for COVID zero policy and, of course, locked everyone up every time anyone had a single infection of of COVID. And that, of course, really did dampen consumer sentiment and consumer spending. And they have been struggling ever since to try and get consumer demand back on track. Now, even that is not enough compared to their standards. But yes, you're right. It it is a sign of, of optimism and a bit of growth. Mm. Now, uh, let's uh, let's stay with the financial ties because there's a story here about the European Union backtracking on a pledge to increase emissions reduction targets. Well, this one I chose because 
It is just so revealing about what all of this says. Now, the news is that the EU environment ministers were holding a meeting and looking to increase their emissions reductions targets from 55% by 2030 to 57%. Now, that's compared to 1990 levels. Now, Georgina... 55 to 57% for the EU doesn't sound like a huge impost, does it? Nevertheless, this has been uh, stymied, uh, mainly because of opposition here from Poland, Hungary and Italy. And so they have said they won't do this ahead of uh, talks in Dubai, the next round of COP talks. And what I think is really fascinating about this is this squabble is over such a small target in of itself. The second point is that those pushing for greater emissions cuts have lost it. And three, the EU has always been kind of on the front line of being very aggressive in in green greening itself and cutting carbon emissions and thereby pressuring the rest of the world to go uh, or match its its own performance. So I think to conclude all of those points, Georgina, there's only one way that we see the climate agenda going in the West, and it's backwards. Now, I think it's important not to be too negative about that because it's still going forward in terms of pretty sizable emissions cuts there. But we're certainly not seeing what we had just a couple of years ago when the UK was hosting COP was some serious momentum from around the world saying, no, now is the time we must get to net zero and uh, we must make those commitments ahead of COP26. Now, COP28 is just not seizing the global momentum in the same way. And there's lots of reasons, I think, for that. But I also think when you tie this into the recent moves made in the UK by the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to go just a little bit slower on some climate measures here in Britain, I think you start to see a trend here in the West that actually uh, driving forward green agendas are not as perhaps popular vote winners as people might have thought. And they're just putting a tiny bit of a, a of a of a push on the brake. I mean, it, and it, it it is extraordinary these U-turns that have been taking place. Uh, and just yesterday, uh, Greta Thunberg was detained by police in London. She said the world is drowning in fossil fuels. People all over the world are suffering and dying from the consequences of the climate crisis caused by these industries. And yet, we're going backwards. Yes, and I would actually argue that Extinction Rebellion and Greta Thunberg have probably done more damage to the cause than help. And I think a lot of these protests uh, have actually enabled uh, politicians to to turn around and say, no, this is too extreme. Actually, we're not on side with these uh, activists who, you know, want to stop you going about your daily life. Um, We're not in the business of trying to stop you doing things in the future that you've been enjoying. So actually, we are just going to put put our uh, feet on, uh, put our foot on the brake here and we've got public permission to do so. And to be honest, Georgina, I think that the politicians are making the right calculation there. Whether that's the right calculation for the environment, uh, that's a different question. But certainly politically, I think they are making a calculation there that they can get away with this and that the public may even reward them. Mm. Well, the environment seems to be thriving in some ancient ruins. I do love this story. I thought we would end on a very nice note, uh, given all the grim things in the world happening right now. Um, But when was the last time you went to the Colosseum, Georgina? Oh, gosh, it must have been half a decade at least. So I was there last year 
just walking around very early in the morning. Um, and I'd, I'd been there a couple of years before, so I didn't go in this time, but walked around. And I must say, it is a beautiful time to just go first thing in the morning as after the sun has risen. Uh, of course, Italy doesn't get up too early. Um, and you get to see a very different side of the Colosseum and one that is filled with nature. And this is what a, documenter, uh, a documentary maker has set out to showcase. Luca Lenghis has been documenting the uh, arrival or the presence or the the residents of the Colosseum you might not know about. And they are the toads, the gulls, the parrots, the crabs and the rabbits and the falcons who all inhabit uh, areas around the Colosseum and the Forum uh, and come out at night and croak in the morning. And he has gone and captured all of them in uh, in flight, in croak, in in claw, and it's in hop. A, yes, exactly. And it's a quite lovely documentary that's about to be broadcast, just showcasing how all these animals have made these ancient ruins their habitat. Sounds wonderful. So that's called The Empire of Nature and it premieres this month at the Rome Film Festival. Latika, many thanks. That's Latika Burke there. And here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. South Korea, the United States and Japan will hold a joint aerial exercise near the Korean peninsula. It'll be the first time the three countries have conducted such a drill. They're expanding joint military exercises on the basis of an agreement by their leaders in August at the Camp David summit to bolster cooperation against North Korea's threats. Venezuela's government and its political opposition have agreed to electoral guarantees for the 2024 presidential elections, paving the way for possible US sanctions relief, though the deal did not lift bans on opposition candidates barred from public office. And climate activist Greta Thunberg was detained by police in London on Tuesday after she and others protested outside an oil and gas conference, preventing some delegates from attending. Thunberg said earlier the world is drowning in fossil fuels. People all over the world are suffering and dying from the consequences of the climate crisis caused by these industries. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Leaders from all over the globe are in Beijing to attend the forum marking the Belt and Road Initiative's 10th anniversary. Among them and guest of honour is Russian President Vladimir Putin. It's his only his second known trip abroad since the International Criminal Court issued an arrest warrant for him in March. The last time he visited China was for the Winter Olympics, just before Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. The two presidents swore then that there were no limits to their friendship. Well, Isabel Hilton is founder of China in a dialogue and a visiting professor at King's College London. She's joining me now from Frankfurt. Uh, Isabel, many thanks for coming on the show again. What are the aims of this summit? Uh, well, it's the uh, 10th anniversary of, of its launching in Kazakhstan, 2013. Um, and, and it's been through many phases, but, you know, a decade has to be celebrated. It's Xi Jinping's signature project. Uh, it's looking a little thinner than the last uh, summit, which was in 2019, when there was still quite a quite a triumphalist mood around Belt and Road. But things have changed a lot since then, partly because of COVID, partly because a lot of projects have gone wrong. Some some prominent countries like Italy have pulled out. 
but of course, this is a matter, it's still a substantial um, a project that uh, $1 trillion has been spent on infrastructure. But it is very much the impression that Belt and Road has peaked, it's fading out, investment is down, uh, but the anniversary has to be marked. Mm. What came out of the first day? Well, not a lot. There were bilateral meetings. Um, uh, Putin and Lavrov arrived and were were warmly welcomed. Uh, Putin uh, managed to uh, fit in a a bilateral with Viktor Orban, uh, one of the few European leaders who's here. What you notice about this um, summit is that a lot of the heads of government or heads of state are here with with their hands out. They're asking for of further funding to finish stalled projects, including Viktor Orban, who has a stalled railway project and wants Beijing to fund its finishing. Uh, Argentina's here. They want a civil nuclear power plant. Kenya, another uh, another railway, the Mombasa-Nairobi railway that, that is problematic, hasn't been finished. Uh, William Ruto owes $4 billion to China already, and he wants more money to get the railway done. So there's a lot of that going on behind the scenes. At the same time, Uh, Xi Jinping is unveiling a a new plan for Belt and Road, which is very different. No more big infrastructure projects, much greener, much smaller. Small is beautiful is the the new watchword. Uh, More high tech, uh, more smart cities, that kind of thing. And an emphasis on promoting national currency. So currency swaps for projects. Uh, 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 Putin also talked about um, about trade in uh, bilateral currencies. So this is all part of trying to take down the dollar as an international currency, a very, very long way to go on that project. Mm. And Putin himself, of course, uh, is being given a platform. Um, and he is keen to get a, a major um, gas pipeline uh, finally underway. So he can sell more gas to China in the absence of the European market. And I wonder if this meeting is likely to be overshadowed by the situation in the Middle East and if Russia and China have said anything publicly about that conflict. It's certainly overshadowed in terms of world attention. I mean, without these two crises, we would all be paying a lot more attention to what's going on in Beijing. Um, But but it's it's, of course, being pushed off most front pages by by these these crises. Uh, China has China has come down on the side of of. of uh, Hamas, really, in terms of, without mentioning Hamas, but it's certainly come down on the side of the Palestinians in the uh, most recent crisis and has long been on the side of Russia in the, U- in the Ukraine crisis, whilst maintaining formally a position of neutrality and calling for peace without doing very much to achieve it. And just the welcome to Putin is is a very big signal. Um, so, yes, if you look at who's here, who's likely to have warm relationships, they're very much countries, in, and certainly in the European context, uh, Orban being a case in point, that already support the Chinese and the Russian positions. So we're not going to see any radical departure here. We're not going to see any big moves, I don't think. I think that that the object of this uh, of this meeting is is not to uh, is is to ignore the the, the crises and to promote uh, Xi Jinping's pet project and to to continue to say to the world that the personal bromance between Putin and Xi continues. 
very much on track. I mean, one of the few places that Putin can come, get a red carpet welcome and not be arrested is Beijing. So I'm sure he's happy to be there. Isabel Hilton in Frankfurt. Thank you very much indeed. This is Monocle Radio. Become a Monocle Magazine subscriber today and enjoy 10% off any annual subscription. It's time to get a truly global view that's upbeat and optimistic. Monocle has plenty more in store for 2023 that will keep you informed, entertained, and, of course, ahead of the game. With a global roster of correspondents and bureau, we deliver stories that you won't find elsewhere. Expect insights on everything from diplomacy and design to art and architecture and more. Sign up today and you'll receive 10 issues and seasonal specials full of inspiration. Visit monocle.com slash subscribe and enter the code RADIO10 to redeem this offer. It's 9.39 in Doha, 8.39 in Zurich. Qatar is a major non-NATO ally of the United States, but also maintains contact with Hamas, the Taliban and Iran, making it uniquely placed as a mediator, a role we've seen it perform increasingly. It negotiated the release of four Ukrainian children from Russia this week and earlier this month was instrumental in holding money released to Iran from the US. The US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, was there last week. While Elham Faro is the Associate Fellow at Chatham House's Middle East and North Africa programme and is in Bahrain and joins us now. Uh, Elham, tell us more about this seemingly contradictory role that Qatar holds. Why is it trusted by the US when it supports so many entities that Washington has branded terrorists? Good morning. It's good to be with you. Yeah, it does initially seem contradictory that Qatar would have ties with organizations like Hamas, like the Taliban, um, and have close ties with Iran as well, while at the same time um, benefiting from its role as a major non-NATO ally of the United States. um, Having this sort of foot in between um, is what Qatar wants. It wants to act as a global diplomatic broker. It wants to bridge between these different groups. And that's really how it sees itself as surviving um, in a region where there are so many interests at play. Um, Increasingly, Qatar's strategy has you know, provided some successes. Um, When, for example, the Taliban took over Afghanistan, Qatar played a major role in evacuating civilians out of there. Um, Previously, the Taliban had opened um, an office in Doha, really the only one in the world. Um, And that linkage helped Doha play a humanitarian role uh, in that crisis. Mm. So this is what it's trying to do again and again, the same when it comes to Ukraine and Russia. In this instance, uh, Qatar was uh, invited by Ukraine to play a mediation role in helping secure the release of the children. And it did so successfully. So I think this highlights, you know, the need for these sort of, for some states to take on more complicated positions, because when it comes down to the, the, the gritty work of negotiations, that's where they're able to be effective. There is a large US military presence in Qatar, isn't there? There is, there is. And it's how, one of the largest in the region. So how does that play with countries like Iran? Um it's. I mean, most of the Gulf states have large U.S. Uh, military bases. Bahrain does. So does Qatar. The United Arab Emirates has a major presence. Um, Iran looks at the the U.S. presence across the shore with uh, its shores with 
Yeah, with a degree of uh, of skepticism, it's not something that it wants. Um, for a long time, Qatar, uh, Iran has spoken to the Gulf states and said, you know, uh, we'd be happy to have dialogue with you and bridge ties. Why don't we get rid of these these foreign uh, troops uh, that are that are in the region? Um, but for the Gulf states, they do see this as key to their survival. And for Qatar, especially, um, if you recall, the blockade of several several years past. Um, Qatar was under a blockade by three Gulf states. That's when the need to have the U.S. there became especially apparent mm. because without it, there may have been an even more of an escalation than what we saw. And what was Anthony Blinken doing there? In Doha. Um, so he's been touring the region, trying to convince um leaders from all Arab states to weaken their ties with Hamas. In Qatar's case, it may have been a bit of a different conversation. There may have been conversations around what role Qatar could play in future diplomacy and future negotiations. Um, But I think Blinken will have been very careful as well to make sure that Qatar really, really temper its ties with an organization that's facing a huge amount of of backlash from, from the United States. And do you think that Doha could play a significant role in this conflict, this latest conflict with Israel and Hamas? It could. It's well positioned to do so. Qatar has been providing aid uh, to the Gaza Strip. It's one of the few countries that's really been able to to access uh, and provide aid to civilians, um, support to Hamas in its governance as an entity um, in, in those aspects of, of what Hamas does. Um, so, so Qatar does play a crucial role in bridging. Again, that's what it looks to do. And I think there is potentially a role for Qatar to play here. Again, all of this is really unclear because events on the ground are just moving so quickly. Um, so, so it remains to be seen what exactly is going to happen. I mean, we've, we're seeing the fallout after this uh, strike on the hospital in Gaza. Many Arab yeah. countries now refusing to have anything to do with Biden during this visit and certainly blaming Israel for it. Do you think Qatar w- w- will, will act on that too? I think Qatar may act on that. We, we, we don't know yet, um, but, but the Arab leaders and the Arab public have been really, really... Um, have condemned this escalation uh, in Gaza. There's been shock and outrage at the bombing of the hospital yesterday. There were civilians taking shelter there, uh, refugees really who had already escaped from other areas taking shelter in the hospital. Um, very high death toll of between 500 to 800 people. And this really is just the latest incident that has shocked the Arab public. Um, and Arab leaders who do have ties with Israel are finding themselves in, in a tricky situation, um, facing pressure to to either walk back on those ties or limit engagement at this point. And in terms of Qatar's role as as a mediator, what's in it for Qatar? It's uh, Qatar is looking to guarantee its survival in the long term. Um, it's surrounded by stronger and more powerful states like Saudi Arabia. We saw four years, several years ago, um, with the enactment of a blockade. Uh, against Qatar by Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, uh, Egypt and the Emirates. This came as a shock to Doha. Um, the blockade was essentially implemented because of differences in the foreign, foreign policy of the two sides. There were complaints that Qatar was too close to political Islam. There were complaints that it was too close to Iran. And this led to this fallout between Doha and its neighbors. So Qatar has really tried to distinguish itself from the others. It's tried to carve out a unique niche for itself. Um, in order to, to secure U.S. protection, in order to secure um, a future, you know, by building alliances that may be unconventional. This is its strategy in the long term. 
and so far it's been successful partly in, in securing it an outsized diplomatic role. Elam, thank you very much indeed. That is Elam Faro. And this is The Globalist on Monocle Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It's time to talk rail news now with Monocle's transport correspondent, Gabriel Lee, who joins me from Stockholm. Good morning to you, Gabriel. Good morning. Uh, This looks like a really exciting story about the revival of a railway in Mexico between the Gulf of Mexico and the Pacific Ocean. Tell us more. Right. Yeah, it's part of a a sort of wider push uh, by the Mexican government to really try and revive rail and also just invest massively in in big infrastructure projects. So this one is interesting because it's basically set up to compete with the Panama Canal, which, uh, as you know, uh, handles lots of big ships, cargo containers uh, crossing between Pacific and and on the other side. So uh, they've had issues with droughts, uh, with having to reduce the number of ships and reduce the weights that can pass through. So Mexico basically sees an opportunity here to uh, build a new rail line, uh, to revive an old rail line, actually. It's a very old one that kind of has fallen into disrepair. Uh, they're investing billions into this. It would be a roughly 200-mile-long corridor where they can move freight, basically. Uh, but there are skeptics about this project, too. Who, who's skeptical and why? It seems as if most of the shipping and logistics industry remains skeptical uh, because there are disadvantages, of course, to having to take uh, containers from ships and load them onto trains. Trains can't carry nearly as much. Uh, and there's also the time it takes to to you know move these things onto land, onto a train, and then move them off at the port on the other end. There's also doubt about whether there'll be much uptake. You know, something like this would require many to to sign on to start sending their goods through here. And uh, they're saying that you know what what would really do it is if there is a, a larger manufacturing industry that builds up around it. But of course, that's sort of an if you build it, they will come thing where where that would need to come before the. The, the goods and logistics. So there's a lot of steps that need to be taken, things that need to happen and things that need to go well for this to be a sort of a financially viable success. I mean, it's going to be hugely, hugely expensive and take presumably years. Yes, I think it, it's, uh, it's. I mean, they're they're basically ready with the rail line. They're starting to run trains on it already and they're, they're you know, ready to launch basically. But for everything else to come on board, for, for there to be, you know, there, there's a lot of other infrastructure they're building around it. Mexico is doing another huge rail line, uh, the, the Mayan Loop, which is more for tourists. They're building a massive oil refinery. You know, all of this is going to take many years to come online. So, yeah, it'll be a long-term thing. It, interesting to see how it develops. Mm. Now, we've been discussing on this program previously that Evelyn, which is a, an operator, a train operator, has vowed to launch services in competition with Eurostar, which, of course, has had a monopoly on that route since 1994. Uh, Eurostar has now, well, the boss of the Channel Tunnel, actually, uh, has, has now reacted, saying it's great news. Yes, I think for, for the operators of the tunnel, it is great news because, of course, they they uh, charge for every every passenger that gets carried through the tunnel. Uh, so for them, the more people, the better coming through and the more competition, the better, uh, because it will increase the number of people and number of services. Um, they're saying that there is room uh, for quite a bit more service to go through the tunnel. It's not at capacity. Um, and of course, you know, we've seen sort of liberalization opening up of, of rail 
uh, systems around Europe lately, and it's tended to mean uh, good things for everyone. It means more service, better fares, better service. Uh, we've seen it happening in in France and Italy. Um, this would be the next next step of that, where you know obviously there's there's room for competition. Definitely, I think you know Eurostar having a monopoly, they, they've had a good run, but uh, they'll be the only ones that won't be happy about this. Mm. Evelyn's going to start with London to Paris. Are they planning to expand that out? Yes, so they want to do many more direct services. They're saying that especially Switzerland and Germany are are sort of interesting markets for them. They see demand for you know direct services from London to Frankfurt to Zurich, Geneva, um, and and all of this is possible. It hasn't really happened so far. Eurostar has been very slowly building out the the number of cities you can reach directly on it from from London. Um, so it'll be nice if if Evelyn does go through with this and you know sort of just increase options for people traveling between London and and the continent. Sure. And just a very quick look at these um, hydrogen trains uh, in hydrogen powered trains in California. Right. Yeah. There's a there's a new order that's been placed for hydrogen trains uh, to to serve mostly the Northern California uh, route network. Hydrogen trains are really interesting or you know appealing for the U.S. especially and North America in general because very few of the tracks are electrified there. So you have a a, a real big jump towards you know zero emissions, very green transport as long as the hydrogen is being made in a green way. Um, but it's it's very much a, a a very you know early stages developing industry. We only have a few hydrogen trains running on limited trucks runs in, in different parts of the world at the moment. Um, it's yet to sort of prove itself as a truly viable technology. There's some that say that uh, battery electric trains are cheaper to operate and just simpler. Um, but it's certainly interesting in terms of, you know, that some of these hydrogen trains can run quite a long time, a long distance without having to, to refuel. Um, so so it, uh, it takes out that problem that we always have with battery electric operated, you know, heavy heavy transport like trains where where you know the power demand is intense and you would need to then you know charge up often so that complicates services uh, so it's an interesting development it's one to watch it's very early days in terms of hydrogen trains Gabriel thank you very much indeed that's Gabriel Lee and you're listening to the globalist on Monocle Radio Join Monocle every weekday and let the briefing guide and inspire you through uncertain times always keeping you ahead of the curve Hear razor-sharp insights and opinion from Monocle's bureau and correspondents, as well as a lineup of brilliant minds from around the world. It's devolving to a point where we're at odds with each other instead of letting our political leaders do the dirty work, so to speak. Heavyweight coverage, no white noise, and always delivered with a smile. I think the grey areas lead to a lot of sort of awkward conversations, and there's nothing the English dislike more than awkward conversations. Keep your appointment with The Briefing every weekday at 1300 CET, noon in London and 7am in New York City, here on Monocle Radio. Now, the luxury Italian label Bottega Veneta has launched a school to foster the next generation of artisanal talent. Launched earlier this week, the Academy builds on Bottega Veneta's connection to the traditional Bottega workshop, where a collective of artisans honed their skills and transmitted knowledge from one generation to the next. Well, Natalie Teodosi is Monocle's fashion editor. She joins me now in the studio. And Natalie, Natalie, I know that you've actually interviewed the CEO of Bottega Veneta, so this is something that you've got particular knowledge of. Uh, Tell us about the launch of the school and why the company needs to invest in training artisans. 
I think the launch of the school is really exciting and it is. I spoke to the CEO um, late last year for a story we were doing in the magazine and the focus on craft has been uh, there for, for a few years now. So this is the next step. And uh, they will be training existing artisans, new hires, but also up to 50 students who will then be uh, guaranteed to be hired uh, and, and become artisans uh, at Bottega Veneta. So um, I think it's it's a really interesting um, uh, initiative because you're making sure that uh, your existing team can see a career progression, but also bringing in uh, new talent. And I mean, presumably then that type of trained talent is in short supply. They need to train them themselves in order to have the work the work they need. Absolutely. I think the, the last decade, uh, handcraft uh, and, and jobs that are in that sector didn't have the best reputation and the, the, the new generation chose to look elsewhere. But uh, what um, Bottega Veneta and a lot of other Italian brands are saying is that um, there's a revival and a renewed interest in this type of jobs. And by investing in this in type of academies, they're also helping to uh, promote the job and uh, show that it is a very appealing um, career path that you can take. Mm, because they've got a new strategy which is a really a focus on craft in motion. Exactly. So um, the last two years, uh, ever since uh, Mathieu Blasi took over as creative director, they really uh, took a little bit of a different direction rather than focusing on trends every season and, and showing new products and, and things that are designed to make noise on social media, um, which is... Fortunately or unfortunately, the recipe that a lot of brands rely on, they've just focused on um, this idea of craft in motion and on really building on uh, especially leather craftsmanship. So one of their signatures now is paper-thin leather trousers that are manipulated to look like denim. They play a lot with their signature intrecciato leather, which is the, the woven leather bags. And uh, that does require a lot of sampling, a lot of experimentation, and uh, hence the investment in uh, in the artisans. And uh, their CEO, Leo Rongone, always says that it's about going back to the roots of Bottega Veneta. It started as a collective of artisans and always thinking about three pillars, which are creativity, craft and dreams. Hmm. And who else is investing in similar initiatives? A lot of the Italian brands have similar initiatives. Um, Tots have, has a craft academy. Um, earlier this year, uh, the Prada and Xenia groups uh, joined forces in order to commit to training uh, new artisans. And I think it's all about preserving that heritage and, uh, of craft that is really special and a, a real source of pride in Italy. Mm. And is there any kind of sort of made in Italy push? There's a big push now. I think we the, there's a trend um, on sort of bringing production back into Europe rather than trying to outsource everything and, and look for cheaper labor. So Italian manufacturers have been a lot busier. And also, as we try to move towards collections that are more that smaller, handmade, uh, produced a lot more mindfully and ethically, um, Italian manufacturing, which is unlike any other, I think, mm. um, has um, a lot more attention to it and the brands are trying to make sure that uh, there's longevity there. And are they taking uh, consumers with them? Are, are, is there a consumer shift here? Are, are buyers wanting that? 
I think so. And it's especially because the brands have now uh, put so much effort in storytelling around craft and changing the, the marketing narrative that it's not about buying into a trend and, and, and quick consumption, but um, about understanding what goes into the making of the clothes and investing in artisanship and craft. And I think it, it, it makes it all a little bit more human and, and, and adds an, another layer to, to buying fashion. Natalie, thank you very much indeed. That's Natalie Teodosi there. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, Laura Kramer and Cece Armstrong, our researcher, Harrison Warlock, and our studio manager, Steph Chungu. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. I'll be back on The Briefing, live at midday in London, and uh, The Globalist will return at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.